And uh, I'm not going to delay this morning in reading because there's a lot of reading to do. Um, verses 13 through 40, 41. Don't judge me too much if you see my face like really close to the book, okay? So, uh, John chapter 9, verses 13 through 41. Uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a, a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes? Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and would you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world, or never since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, 
you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> this passage, um, this passage was really good. It's really good for me in thinking about all the different sorts of people who walk this world, people that we come in contact every day. First thing I thought of is the way we have to see something before we believe it. That's what led me to the the title that I gave this sermon. Because it's commonplace to hear that, um, it's commonplace for us to hear that someone say, I'll believe it when I see it. It's so commonplace that I know I've said it before, and, and you probably have said that before, too, in response to something outrageous. Maybe uh, someone has told you um, something that you hear from your kids, like, I'm not going to do that again. I'll believe it when I see it, right? That's usually the response. If we don't say it out loud, we're thinking about that. <clears throat> but some, some actually treat God that way. And some have come to the conclusion that they will not believe in God until they see him. Fact is, he's all around us. He's easy to see when you're equipped with what you need to see him. But when you take that principle, you take that philosophy of I'll believe it when I see it, it's only a worldly Philosophy, it's only a worldly principle because it doesn't translate into the spiritual life or the spiritual aspect of things. Because God flips things around and and he says, No, you you are gonna you are going to believe it, and because you believe it, then you will see it. It's a beautiful thing what God does. So we come to the conclusion, and this is what this sermon is about, is we must believe in God in order to see God. Faith comes first before we actually know and see who he is. That's exactly what this story is about, and that's exactly what is happening here. See, when it comes to God and those things that are considered spiritual matters, as Christians, We must know that in order to truly see God, we must first believe in him. So this is a second part of the story. Uh, The first part I preached on last week was verses 1 through 12. And we're going to continue the story of the man who was born blind. And and we see this principle at work. Uh, First, we see the blind man that Jesus healed and how he comes to the realization that Jesus Christ is Lord of his life. And then we see another group of people, uh, the religious leaders. They also witnessed the, uh, the healing, and they come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is a sinner. And then there's this other group I could probably add to it, and we're going to talk about. There's this group of, of people who uh, see the miracle. They don't really consider him a sinner, but they don't know who he is. And they're left wondering and wrestling with that question is, how did each of these groups come to their conclusion, and who is right about Christ? 
That's, those are the questions that we're going to answer today. And after we answer those questions, we are, uh, my hope is that we uncover the great mystery of how faith is given to us and how it is gifted to us and how we receive it. So let's go ahead and start breaking down this text because, again, there's a lot to look at. The first thing I want us to look at are the, the tale of the three faiths, the three different kinds of faiths. Um, again, John 9, 1 through 12, tells us the story of how this man born blind received his sight from the Lord. Um, it's an amazing story because here we have a man who is helpless, and he's a picture of us as sinners. He's helpless. He cannot help himself. All he can do is beg day and night uh, for monetary help and, and, and beg for people to help him. And he cannot even see the Lord uh, coming at him. He cannot even pick him out. He is blind to the Lord, just like we are blind to him whenever we are born in sin. It takes, it takes the Lord to open our spiritual eyes in order for us to see him. And that's the picture that we get here. That's the analogy. That's the teaching that we get here in verses 1 through 12. It's wonderful because we serve a, a sovereign God, and we see the sovereign God in action here. We see the, the Lord seek him out. He found him, and he healed him. That's a picture of us. That every single one of us in here who are Christians, that is a picture of us. The Lord has sought us out. Uh, he found us and he healed us. And what's amazing about it is that the Lord used mud to anoint his eyes and he commanded him to go wash in the pool. We talked about how that in itself was, uh, um, it, it was, it was a test for the man to see if he was going to respond in faith and, and obey the command. The man goes and obeys the command. When the man came out of the pool, he, he came out seeing, the Bible says. And mostly everyone around him, and notice I said mostly, mostly everyone around him recognized how wonderful of a miracle this was, and they began to seek Jesus out. But then there's this other group, this, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of that day, they actually had issues with what Jesus did, and they, instead of... They sought him out too as well, but it wasn't for the same reason. It wasn't to seek him out to know him more and eventually see him as son of God and savior of the world. They sought to persecute him by drumming up accusations against him. And you can see that after this miracle occurred, they brought the man to the Pharisees. And basically, this is an interrogation. And we see that in verse 13, the very first verse that we read today. And during this interrogation, some of the Pharisees said, that Jesus, that he was not from God. They came to that conclusion right away. Why? Because he did not keep the requirements of the Sabbath. Now, the only problem is these weren't God's requirements. These were things that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day, and really Israel throughout the, the history of the Old Testament, how they continued to add to the law, to make it a burden on the people. And they had some really silly things on there and supposedly healing somebody doing good works, good and merciful works for the Lord was against the rules. That was breaking the Sabbath. But when we see God's law and what he actually told them to do, there was rooms for acts of mercy on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees said, no, 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 that's considered work. <clears throat> you made mud. You worked on the Sabbath. Never mind the fact that he healed a man born blind. They were so focused on proving him 
wrong and, and, and proving him not to be the son of God and savior of the world, they were just focused on you made mud and you put it on his eyes. And for that reason, they called Christ a sinner. So they called him a sinner because he didn't keep their requirements of the Sabbath, but he was in no way sinful because he kept the law of God completely and he kept it faithfully. That's why he was able to die for us and take the wrath of God away from us because he lived a perfect life. So we see this taking place and right away we can see how we see their motive and what they're trying to do. But what's interesting is that there is this other party within that party, within the the, the religious leaders. and They said this, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? See that in verse 16. Now, that's very interesting because you have a group of the Pharisees who are saying, no, this man is a sinner because he worked on the Sabbath. Therefore, he is not from God. We need to just get rid of him. Don't worry about him and just be done away with him. Then there is this other group within the the, the Pharisees who said, wait a second. You're calling him a sinner, and yet he has done something amazing here. We cannot deny what's been done. How can a sinner do such things and look they're not just looking at what he did here and now those people are thinking about everything that Christ has done already all the wonderful works that we've talked about from chapters one through eight already and what he's done this is all going on in their heads and they're saying wow this this man's body of work is showing him not to be a sinner but to be something else but notice they don't get beyond that it's like they're wrestling with something. They're trying to figure something out, but, but they don't take that step of faith. They stay right there. <clears throat> this whole thing calls, the, the Bible says, calls a division between the party. And it's funny because once they started to argue within themselves, they turn and they ask the man, well, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about him? You give us your answer. And the man said, well, I think he's a prophet. Now, I want us to notice something here with the man. So far, we have no one who has come to saving faith. All the parties involved right now are trying to, well, one part of the Pharisees, they're they're trying to discourage any kind of belief in Christ as the Savior of the world and, and Son of God. Another part of the Pharisees are trying to figure out who he is and they're wrestling with it. And then you have this man who was healed and he's like, I don't know who he is, but I think he's a prophet. At least I can start there. Since those who were seeking to persecute Christ, they basically got nowhere. They asked around, they're fighting within their own group. They They asked the guy who was healed, they're really getting nowhere. They try to, the next thing they try to do is try to discredit the miracle by saying that the man that Christ healed really wasn't even born blind. They really couldn't pin him down on anything, and they, they just try to discredit him. And of course, he was put to the test, and he passed the test. 
Now, it's always good for us to put things to the test. And we are told that in Scripture that we need to be good Bereans. We need to hear what is being said. We need to see what is being done. And we, we need to put it to the test. What, is that, what does that mean? That means to put it to the test of God's word. And to see if it aligns with his word. If it aligns with his word, it brings honor and glory to God. Then we can receive it, even if we like it or not. So it's good to put things to the test, but they were trying to put him to the test only with the intention of making him fail. They called his parents in, but that also backfired because the parents just confirmed what everybody already knew, that the man indeed was born blind and that he received his sight through Christ. We see that in verse 20. And then there's this last ditch effort to get the man to acknowledge that Jesus should not get the credit for this miracle. They called him back in, and they demanded him to give glory to God. What that means is, no, Jesus is not God. Do not give him any credit. Just give glory to God, and we'll be okay with this whole situation. This is what they said in verses 24 and 25. Give glory to God. We know that this man, who they're speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And the man answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. See, they accused the man of being a disciple of Christ as well. So what they were basically saying is, okay, we can't convince you to say and give honor to God and and just put him him aside. They try to say, oh, we know why you're doing this. You're his disciple and you're trying to deceive everybody. We get it. You're working together and and, and you're doing this together and you're trying to be deceptive. But the man answered this, and this is extremely powerful. Verses 30 to 33. He says, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he can do nothing. Amazing. So what what are we seeing here? We are literally seeing faith working in this man who was healed. We are, we are seeing it just working in him, and it's wonderful to see it. We get the advantage of this bird's eye view of this whole situation, and it's beautiful to see faith coming to him. And so since they, the Pharisees could not bring any valid accusation against Christ or the man, they basically labeled him the same as they labeled Christ. They said, you're a sinner. And because in response to what he said, they said to him, who are you to teach us? You were born in utter sin and, and you would teach us? And they basically just got rid of him. They cast him out. And we see that in verse 34. But you know what's awesome? What's awesome is that that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and found him. Listen to this, verses 35 through 39. Jesus asked him, do you believe in the son of man? And He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, 
I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. It's just a wonderful story, extremely powerful in seeing how faith is accepted, faith is rejected. And in this story, there's one thing that is Present, that was present last week that we talked about in verses 1 through 12. It is the sovereignty of the Lord working in people's lives. You see, last week we discussed the sovereignty of the Lord over, over the blind man's life. This man was born blind for the sole purpose that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some people see that and they're like, wait a second, I cannot... They say, I cannot receive that. I can't accept that. How can God be that way? You see, his life was made for this moment in time. And that's extremely, extremely heavy for us to think about because we think about all the suffering, all the anguish, everything he went through being blind and not only just being blind, but never, ever, ever seeing anything. All that was so that God would get the glory in healing him. And and when we think about that and we see that, it's extremely heavy and it's extremely hard for us to accept it. And the only way we really can accept it is if God is moving in our hearts to see it. Because if we do not have the spirit, there is no way we can accept that. We say that's not fair. And that's what a lot of people do. They look at that and they see the sovereignty of God and they say, wait a second, it's not fair. He cannot intrude in my life. But the fact is, he is the one who gave you life. The Bible tells us that God has the right, this right over his creation because he is the creator and we are the creatures. That causes a lot of turmoil. People deal with that every single day. There are aspects of it that I I still learn. We all learn about God's sovereignty and how it really works in our lives. Because there are moments in time where I want to say, why is this happening to me? And this is not fair. There are moments in time where I I, I want to go back to the years past and I, I want to tell God everything that I've done for him, everything that I've given up for him. And when I start to do that, I think of how how nonsense that is. Because it's not going to convince God otherwise, and it doesn't give me any right over God. He created me. In fact, he predestined who I was going to be and what I was going to do for him. The Bible, the Bible is clear that God is sovereign in our over our physical lives but also over our spiritual lives. Listen to this out of Romans 9. I want to read verses 13 through 23 for you. I don't know how many of you here like boxing. I'm not a huge, huge fan of it, but I do. I like, I like to watch a good match. If any of you have ever heard of a, right, a good right hook, good right hook is this punch that comes from the side, and it is, it is very effective. And it is very surprising 
when someone, it, you could see the expression on their face when they get hit with a good right hook. They never saw it coming, right? They never saw it coming. They're watching for the jab. They're watching for the uppercut. But that right hook always seems to get somebody or the left hook. I'm right-handed. That's why I say the right hook. This passage right here, I like to call this passage a right hook from the Bible. John 9, verses 13 through 23. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That sound familiar? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will, uh, will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand See, this story and what is happening afterward, this, this chapter here, John chapter 9, all that is happening with the Jewish leaders and the man who was healed, all this points to us, or points us to the fact that God is not only sovereign over our physical lives, but he is sovereign over our spiritual lives as well. Now, with that point in mind, I, I, want, I want us to look at this passage and, and to, to reevaluate it with that point in mind, with the sovereignty of God in mind. <clears throat> it helps us to understand what's going on better here. We clearly see what's happening in the lives of these people as they try to understand and as they try to respond to this miracle that Jesus, that, that Jesus had performed on the man born blind. First, there are the Jews who saw Jesus as a sinner. These are the guys in verse 13. Right away, they're just like, no, he's doing work on the Sabbath. We're not, we're not going to pay attention to what he's doing, why he's doing it. He's, we're just going to label him as a sinner. These people clearly do not believe. It's easy for us to see that. And nor, they, they not only believe, but they 
they have no intentions of believing. They just want to discredit Christ. They have no interest in believing that Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the world. Their whole existence, their purpose, is to disprove the works of God that Jesus was doing. They investigated the miracle with a motive to discredit him. This was a beautiful thing, the Bible says, that Christ had done. And instead of them responding in faith, their sinful hearts were further hardened. And they fell deeper into their sin. Now with that in mind, let's ask this question. What what did Jesus do to this group of people? Or what did he do for this group of people? Wasn't nothing. If we are careful to look at, at, at the scripture... He left them to the hardening of their hearts. And he permitted them to fall deeper into sin. He didn't come and try to convince them and plead with them and say, no, you just you just have to believe in me. To this group in verse 40, he says, your guilt remains. Then we have the second group. The Jews who say Jesus was a good man, they're trying to wrestle with the fact of who Jesus is. Well, we know he's not a sinner, but we just don't know who he is. How can a sinner do such good works? So they saw him as a good man who did good things. These people were cautious in coming to the conclusion that Jesus was actually sent by God. They had a hard time believing that Jesus, again, was a sinner because of the works that he had done. Now, they did a good thing by challenging the other Jewish leaders who did not believe at all in Christ. They did a good thing by doing that, but they also did not come to true faith in Christ. We've heard about the, the, the parable of the sower and how the seed falls in those different places. This reminds me of, of, of the very first instance where the seed falls along the path. And what does the parable say? It says that the birds came and picked up the seed before it had a chance to grow. Faith was just, it was just at the surface. It was like, it was starting, but then all of a sudden the faith was just taken away. What did Jesus do with this group? As far as we know, they were left asking questions and wondering if Jesus was really the Savior was promised from the Old Testament. Again, we don't have a Savior who is begging and pleading for someone to believe in him. Then we have the Jew, the Jew, the one person who saw Jesus as Lord and Savior in this story. Up until the point that Christ approached him the second time and presented the gospel to him, he didn't completely believe. But we saw Faith working in him. Before we know that he only saw Jesus as a prophet who did something great for him. What did Jesus do with this person? Well, if we look at scripture, we see that he not only opened his physical eyes so that he could see, but he also opened his spiritual eyes. 
the Lord in his sovereignty, the Lord in his sovereignty saved this man from hell. It was the Lord's doing. We have three groups of people. They were all lost. Two, he left to where they were. To the one, he went and he saved him. Now this is pointing to this moment in time. There is no telling these other people who questioned Jesus and who he was. There's no telling what God did with them at a later time. But we're speaking about right here, right now in this passage. My question to you is where do you stand? When you look at this story, which person is you? Are you the one whose heart is being hardened to the fact that Jesus is Lord and that you're really not in control? Do you continue to walk further away from him and be entangled more in sin? And as a result, do you find yourself worshiping yourself instead of worshiping the one true God who made you? Or are you the one who is trying to figure things out concerning Christ? You're not really exactly sure if you believe in him, but there's something about him that catches your attention. You probably come to the conclusion that if you're this person, you're really not sure why you're here today, but you just know this is where you're supposed to be. But you still have a lot of questions. You still... There's a lot of turmoil going on inside of you. Or are you the one who was blind spiritually and now you can see? Your spiritual eyes have been opened. You see the weight of your sin, but more importantly, you see the power of your Savior and how he has taken away your sin. Now, wherever you land within these three groups of people, this is the news I have for you today. That's where God has put you. That's where God has you. But you know what? There's always a purpose to his will. And that is the good news of the gospel. You see, for the person who rejects God and lives without sorrow over his sin, someone in the past may have told you that you are breaking God's heart and that he wishes for you to come to him and that he just hopes that you would let him into your heart. I don't see how that aligns with the God of the Bible. As again, I'm not trying to be harsh in this. I'm just trying to bring the reality that God is sovereign. We do not see Christ walking around to each of these groups of people saying, please Let me into your heart. Please give me another opportunity to prove to you that I am your God. There is no pleading. He he leaves them in their position. But to the one that is destined to be saved, he goes to him and saves him. Somehow, some way, we've turned it around and we've made Christianity a man-centered religion where it's like God needs us. And whenever we are not accepting God, well, we're breaking God's heart. I'd like to challenge that belief 
for you today. The truth, if you're willing to accept it or not, the truth is that you are not breaking his heart, rather you are fulfilling his purpose. The Bible talks about the Lord having plans for you. Listen to this very carefully. The Lord does have plans for you if you are rejecting him. His plans are for you to spend eternity in hell. Those are the plans that he has for you. The good news, though, this is awesome. This is the good news. Even if you're that person that I'm speaking to right now, the good news is that even though you reject God now, that can change in a moment's notice. There's a reason why you're here today. There's a reason why God has brought you to his word. Like the man born blind, God can give you spiritual sight through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we need to call upon the name of the Lord and we will be saved. My message to you is that you repent while there is still time. The fact that you're here now, that you're listening to this message, that you are hearing the word of God, and that you are able to decipher it, you feel conviction over it, I can firmly attest to you that that's the Lord speaking to your heart for you to leave that life behind. You were not destined, you were not made for that life. You were made to serve him. So repent while there's still time. Believe that Christ is Lord of your life and that he died to take away the wrath of God from your soul. Now for the person who is unsure about Christ, You know in your heart that he was a good man, but you haven't come to the conclusion that he is Lord of your life. And you know what? I want to be a little frank this morning with you. It shows. It shows that he is not Lord of your life. If this is you, let me me kind of spell it out for you. Let me paint a picture of it. You're probably in and out of church. You cannot commit to one or another. Your prayer life is pretty inconsistent and probably selfish. You regret your sin, or you regret your sin not because you have sinned against God, but because you are suffering the consequences of that sin. I want to speak to you as well and let you know that believing that Jesus was a good person and that overall you're a good person. I want to let you know that that's not genuine faith. And if you think you just do good things every once in a while and you're okay, that's not genuine faith. I don't speak this in order to be mean to you. I speak it to be loving to you. I want to warn you. I want to tell you that you need your spiritual eyes opened. Because the plain fact is, is that your spiritual eyes have not been opened to the truth But the good news is that the same Lord who opened the eyes of the blind man can open your spiritual eyes any moment. Now we get to the last group. 
I think this consists of most of the people in here, if not all. For the person who, whose eyes have been opened to the truth, I want you to listen to me very carefully here. Rejoice in your condition. I am confident that as Christians, we do not spend enough time thinking of how blessed we are just that we are counted as God's children. Do we ever rejoice over the fact that God saved us? For a lot of Christians, that's like old news. That's like, okay, that's happened. What's next? But that's something we should never, ever, ever get over. The fact that he saved us from our sins. Remember who you were. Remember what you did. Remember where you were headed. Remember what kind of woman you were, what kind of man you were, what kind of child you were before the Lord saved you. We need to do more rejoicing in our condition. See, the, Lord, the sovereign Lord has sought you out. He found you and he saved you from the wrath of God that was in store for you. You were like that man who was born blind. But instead of opening your physical eyes, Christ opened your spiritual eyes and you saw him as Lord and Savior. Now listen to this very carefully. You are his chosen vessel. You are his chosen vessel to carry out the works that he has already set for you, that he has already predestined for you. In response to that, this is what needs to be done, church. And this shouldn't be coming through announcements, and this shouldn't be coming through me up here reminding people to do this. This is all in response to rejoicing in your position, in your condition as being a child of God. If you are in this group, then love each other, number one, the Bible says. Because that's how we are going to be recognized. That we love one another. But you know what happens many times? And within churches, there's not enough loving going on. Instead of there's, there's just hate. There's backstabbing. There's gossiping. There's all kind of different things that are going on. People aren't willing to, to get along. People aren't willing to get to know each other. But we are told to love each other. If you have been saved, then love each other. Second of all, Serve your church. There, there's no need to wonder if you need to serve. There's no need for you to wait if, if, for the pastor or anybody else to come and ask you to serve. Rejoice in the condition that you have been saved and you are called to serve his body. Imagine if your hand didn't do what you wanted your hand to do. Imagine if your left foot didn't work. How would that affect your body? It's no different when people are not willing to serve in the church. Sacrifice your life for the betterment of God's kingdom. Give yourself over to the teachings of the gospel. Disciple someone. 
Give of your time. Give of your talents. Give of your treasures. And listen, most importantly, count it all as worship, not expecting anything in return from anybody, and especially God, but count it as a blessing that you get to serve the Lord. You see, God has caused us to believe, so then therefore now we see. It's a wonderful thing that he has done for us. And even though you may end up, you may be the unbeliever who is rejecting God, you may be the person who is wondering who God is, or you may be, you may be the person who God has already saved. In every single group, there is good news of the gospel. What you have to do this morning is respond to it. Let's pray.